On a couple of accounts, I had habits on my mind. One, I spent a lot of time on my sabbatical trying to develop habits and drop habits and learn something about how they actually work. And also, it's January. You know, that time when people are trying to create a new habit and, well, we start with a lot of inspiration um, before the new year and now it's three weeks in, we might already be feeling like, hmm, this isn't working so well. My goals look farther away than ever. Habit formation is the process by which behaviors become automatic or almost automatic. Decisions require our prefrontal cortex. They take time, they take energy. Once something becomes ingrained as a habit, the prefrontal cortex is barely involved and can pay attention to more important things that only it can do. Like think about your, your route between two places you travel to often, right? You, you don't even think about how you got there and you could probably barely remember that you did it um, when you go from work to home or, and so on. It's pretty automatic. And by the same token, bad habits are easy to continue. So the secret to breaking them is to make them harder. Like if you want to break the habit of reaching for your phone all the time, which can become very automatic, right? Just reach the right before you've even thought about what's making you want to do that. Um, well, you might turn it off. You might put it in another room. You put, build little barriers to, um, to practicing that bad habit. There's been a lot of ink uh, devoted to how habits are really what make us what we are. The things we do again and again, either because we de deliberately de develop that practice or it's just become, become a habit. And so if we want to change something about ourselves, then rather than just create a grand goal, I'd like to, you know, become this buff, 16 inches buff or something before the end of the year, you create a habit. Here's what I'm going to do every day or every week. Abdul Kalam, the 11th president of India said, you cannot change your future, but you can change your habits. And surely your habits will change your future. So one reason to address habits instead of working on our inspiration or making our goals grander is that they make us who we are really in the day-to-day. -day. And another is that they're effective, as Octavia Butler said in our centering words, and she should know. She's obviously talking about herself in this advice to writers. When it comes down to really polishing and finishing up your stories, it's habit. And writers have a zillion habits, right? Some people say this many words before I leave the computer. Some people say I have to do this first thing in the morning or I think when I go running and then I write. Ernest Hemingway said always leave in the middle of something. Don't, if I quit at the end of a chapter then it's really hard to get going the next day but if I quit in the middle of something then I'm eager to get back to it. We all have our ways in our own lives of creating the habits that will help carry us through 
when inspiration has not yet shown up. Another thing about habits, though, and it's a good and bad thing about them, is that their effects are slow, as Solnit says. They don't change things overnight, and we're impatient. We want to see results. So it's really good to be reminded that it takes a long time to see results in things that we want, that are important to us. And that habits really are the royal road to getting there, not a big sudden change. That's not what usually happens. It is good to know, however, that they get easier. And this is something I have been learning. And I'll tell you a little story about um, my skeptical journey to that point. Because having discovered that they are frustratingly difficult to develop, you know, I, I bought the whole thing about, okay, habits are the way to go. Don't just create a grand plan, a, a goal for your year or your life. How are you going to get there? Create a little, this is what I'm going to do each day well, then I don't want to actually do it, and so on. So here's, here's something that I've encountered many, many times. Fill in your own examples. I want to spend more time on art. I have to overcome a lot of emotional inertia to sit down and start, even though I love it. The reasons why, you know, I could go on about for a long time. I have performance anxiety, I have perfectionism. There's all sorts of things that compete with the pure enjoyment of making art and make it hard to just sit down and do it again. And then almost every time I do get going, I'm having a wonderful time. And I say to myself, why don't I remember this tomorrow? And yet I have the same problem of overcoming the inertia. Now, somebody told me that the decades of bad feelings connected with art, when I talk about my perfectionism and, oh, I don't like how I, what I produced and da-da-da-da, she said, well, those have created neural pathways that are like a well-worn trail in your mind, in your brain. They're easier to take. That trail is easier to take than a new one that still requires, you know, some bushwhacking and, and pounding down the, the twigs. Now, the trail is meant as a simile. Um, obviously, but this person was being quite literal about the neural pathways um, and saying to me, hey, Amy, by choosing to make art again and again, even though it's a little hard, you will create better pathways and they will eventually be as easy to slip into as the old ones, just like a, a, a cleared, frequently traveled trail becomes no harder to walk on than the old one was. Now, there's a lot of pseudoscience around when it comes to cognitive neuroscience. So I, even though I respect this person a lot, they're not a scientist, and I thought I would ask somebody who is. So I wrote to a friend of mine who is a cognitive neuroscientist, uh, Dr. Gita Shivda, who is a, um, a professor at Westchester University. And she said, yes, all behavior and knowledge changes involve changes to the brain. The longer answer is that these changes usually involve creating or pruning connections among already existing networks of neurons. You don't usually make new neurons except under very rare circumstances. But she says the specialized parts of your neurons called dendrites 
do grow or recede from connections to other neurons across your lifetime. So looking at my example, she says, we repeat behaviors that are rewarding. We avoid behaviors that bear punishments, right? So over time, you have created connections among certain behaviors, making art, and negative feelings. So you avoid the art. Even though you are aware consciously of the inaccuracy in that association, the brain areas involved in that habitual response are still strongly connected and are primarily unconscious. And as you've probably noticed, she notes also, this fits the behaviorist explanation of what's happening. Like Pavlov and Skinner, bad associations have to be gradually replaced with good ones. So she says, the metaphor of making new paths in the forest and letting the old ones grow over is pretty good. What this takes, of course, is patience. But um, it also provides a lot of hope. Like, it's a lot easier to be patient with how hard it is to still fill in your, the habit you want to acquire here, to get up and go to the gym to meditate every morning, to do art, whatever it is that you're trying to do. It's a lot easier to keep that up if you have that promise that it really does get easier. Each time you do it, those dendrites are reaching a little further. It's slow, but it gets easier. You've heard it from a cognitive neuroscientist. And that's really helpful when you're dealing with something that's slow, which most of the changes that are really important in our lives, whether they end up being connected to bad habits or good ones, or bad national habits or good ones, are, um, it's, I forgot what the beginning of that sentence was, but it is important to uh, remember that it really does get easier. Now, what's really interesting to me as um, somebody who deals with in community, and I'm sure it'll be interesting to you as people who are here in a community, is that habits work at a community level also. Traditions could be said to be habits for communities. And they are not only for a particular community at a particular moment, but over time, sometimes over hundreds or thousands of years. It was my daughter who came up with that lovely formulation. And she said, for example, you could tell your kids that it's important to help people. Um, that's the way you're trying to pass your values on to your kids. Or you could come to church and do Undie Sunday every December and be hosts to Heart and Home and Hotel de Zinc and be among other people who celebrate periodically, say, every month when we take up our offering for a local organization that helping people is something we do. And these become rituals, they are traditions, they are community habits. But as she also noted, sometimes the reasons why get lost over time. And that is the nature of ritual as it's the nature of habit. I don't even know why I'm reaching my phone for my phone. I had this brief thought that, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe a new recipe, recipe for pasta al forno, and, and all of a sudden I'm looking at, at 17 different websites, right? Um, 
And that certainly happens with communities, that we pass along the actions divorced from the explanations, and that's great because those actions take on a life of their own, just like the habits, the good ones and the bad ones. Um, but we don't want to do things unconsciously always. We want to know why, um, so that we make sure we're still on the path we want to be on. So one of the things we do as a community is try to revisit those, those um, reasons and ask why do we do something a certain way. Sometimes it means maybe we shouldn't anymore. The reasons are lost in time. Or when we think back at the reasons, actually they're not so good or they don't apply anymore. Um, and then there's things that I think we still want to do, like, for example, why do we light a chalice? Come next week to be reminded or to learn for the first time because it's our chalice Sunday. So communities have ways of explaining the why. They tell stories. They sing songs. The griots in West Africa are the oral historians of their people. They keep the good habits going by telling the stories over and over that remind people, oh, this is why we do this when somebody dies. Oh, this is why we choose our leaders this way. A reminder over and over again of the why of the community habits, the traditions. We have other ways of doing that as well. Reading literature, reading history. Ever since people started writing stuff down, we have looked to texts, sacred texts, so-called secular texts, to say, oh, this is how things are done. And they become a part of a habit a way of just practicing over and over again something that people did a long time ago. In a culture that's so bent on instant gratification and so disdainful of the past and the old, these are radically countercultural behaviors. Paying attention to history, practicing traditions, carrying on the communal habits that keep us on the path that somebody recognized a long time ago would make us good and happy and healthy. When I said um, to, this, to this friend who, was, who gave me the, um, the uh, metaphor of the forest, when I said, this is really hard, to acquire these habits, even though I, I know where they're pointing me and why I'm doing them, and that making them habitual will make it all easier, still, I'm not even able to develop the habits. She said, well, you've identified yourself as a little ADHD, and there you go. Instant gratification is what you want. And I thought, our whole culture is like that. We're all a little, not individually, but culturally, a little ADHD. Show me, show me the results. That's why we need voices like Solnitz. And we need those ties to the past. We crave them. Otherwise, we're stuck in January trying to make our goals a reality, trying to make the new habits stick that will get us there. And that's the hard part. It's far easier to keep a habit going than to start up a new one, as we know when we try to end a bad habit. But here's another, uh, this is an example that keeps, kept coming to my mind um, of how we, how we pass things on and how important it is to us. 
as I was writing about these ideas, a song I didn't think I even really knew or liked came into my head. Landslide. You've probably heard it. You might even be able to sing along, even if you don't know the title, because, well, it's just kind of ubiquitous in our culture. It's the one with this chorus, so sing with me if you know it. Well, I've been afraid of changing cause I built my life around you. Yeah, a lot of people know it. But time makes you bolder, children get older, I'm getting older too. Okay, this song, thank you very much, was first performed by a quintessential baby boomer band, Fleetwood Mac who formed in the summer of love and had their greatest hits over the several years that followed. Uh, remember how our first baby boomer president, Bill Clinton, chose Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow as his theme song until we were all ready to scream? That was a Fleetwood Mac hit. He knew his demographic, okay? Their lead singer, Stevie Nicks, wrote the song, uh, Landslide, and if you've heard it on the radio or out of speakers in the store, you were probably hearing her voice. It's probably old enough now that now you're hearing it in elevators, okay? But that's, you know, what happens. So that was one generation. The next generation, though, also found it meaningful and wanted to make it their own. And along came the Smashing Pumpkins and the Chicks with hit versions in the 1990s and the early aughts. And 20 years after that, indie pop singer The Japanese House recorded it, and a Chicago subway musician's stunning version was videoed around that same time, and the video has received over 30 million views. So you can add yours by putting, this sounds awful, but you'll find it, Subway Landslide into the search box on YouTube, and you will find not real-life disaster videos, but a really beautiful rendition of that song. As a culture, we do things over and over. We rely on habit, traditions, radio hits that we, we then, that then, I'm sorry, I can't read my own handwriting. Oh yeah, I'm dating myself, radio hits. Radio hits that then are, you know, Spotify numbers. And I think that this or any hit song is an example of a kind of cultural habit because each generation needs to learn the same things. And so this wisdom in this song, which I have really come to love now that I've spent some time with it this week, is something that people learn in each generation. Now, there are some things that, you know, we might not learn that our elders knew, such as how to hitch horses to a wagon. And there are others that today's generation needs to know that previous generations didn't know and so can't teach them, like text etiquette. And then there are lots of things that everyone needs to know, such as when to recognize that you've built your life around another person. How to decide whether that is good or bad or neutral. We need to know that other people have been afraid of changing, like us. And we need to sing the songs that help us discern when it's time to change. 
This is a little piece of human history that comes down. And people in each generation say, oh yeah, I know what she's talking about. I think I'm going to sing that too. I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the song that lodged itself in my head and said, use me as an example, because it's a song about change. It's a song about trying to get ourselves out of a rut and onto a better path. About how our ways become ingrained. And sometimes we don't want them to still be the ways of our lives. The difficulty of changing, the necessity of it, how we finally do it when time makes us bolder. And the knowledge that we're getting older and don't have infinite time to make the changes we want. And how maybe that will nudge us to do things that we've put off. So, if you're giving yourself a hard time about the goals that seem farther away than they did in December when you set them out for the year, please consider making a habit instead of a goal. And if, like me and every other person I've ever met, you find developing new habits is difficult, here's a few things to remember. That they are effective, more effective than just having a grand goal, that their effects are slow, that it becomes easier to adopt them with time, literally as you make new paths in your brain. And that we as communities need those habits as well. So that as we're adding new habits or pruning our habits, we might also look to the communal habits that help us, the traditions, the stories, the songs that help keep us on that path that brings us to wonderful new places, mountaintops, and other great places to discover. <laughs>